0: Welcome to Podcast Sans Frontiers, a Metal Gear Solid audio experience. Here, we infiltrate the narrative, interrogate the characters, extract the themes, via Fulton, of course, and finally face down the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear franchise.
1: Such a lust for revenge!
0: I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. I'm Brian. Today's episode is The Day Weapons learn to Walk Upright. Where we finally show down with Skullface and Sahelanthropus, wrapping up the main conflict of The Phantom Pain. But first, our spoiler warning for this and every episode everything is declassified. We know who Sigent becomes, we know who Meryl marries, we know the fate of Master Kazuhira Miller. This is not a playthrough podcast, it's all on the table for discussion as we progress through the games. Episode 30, Skullface, is set in OKB Zero, a part of the Afghanistan map that was previously unavailable. It's a base that was built by the Soviet philosophers, again possibly adjacent to Yarsk, and/or the location of Zanzibar Land in Metal Gear 2: Solid Snake. It's Snake's soloiest, infiltrationiest mission yet, but the entire team of Kaz, Huey, and even Eli are in tow in a support chopper nearby named the Quecag. The chopper's name is also a Moby Dick reference to the cannibal harpooner that Ishmael picked up off the South Pacific island named Rokovoko. Oh, and also, the plan wasn't to bring Eli, he just stowed along. This is going to change the entire direction of these final scenes, as will play out shortly. But it is an all-hands-on-deck mission as the opening credits literally say, take vengeance on Skullface. Ocelot is holding down Mother Base for now. Let's discuss this mission first, and then the fireworks factory that follows. So you have a long approach to the base, and all the Russian guards that are manning the outer gate have been killed in front of the barricade, and then there's a long singular road uphill to OKB-0 proper. Uh, There's an open gate in the center, and the outer defenses include a sniper with an enhanced range due to the hill he's on, a walker gear patrolling the main road, three sentries, one foot patrol, and a spotlight guy on the left if you're doing your infiltration at nighttime. A thing to note about OKB-0 is that all enemies are in full XOF body armor except for the walker gear pilots, so even headshots won't avail you here. I usually come in from the far left and stay low and try to climb up the cracks behind the sentry on the left. Um, You can also use that pattern to get behind basically the entire outer defense and take out everyone if you want um, but if I'm just trying to do it as stealthily as possible, I just go far left and I climb the wall to get over.
2: The last time I did it, I just ran through. I just walker-geared through because <laughs> I was just running through. But yeah, the first time I went through, I definitely um, very methodically stealth. I think it took D-Dog on this one.
0: Yeah, I absolutely did too.
2: Because he's the most stealthiest boy that there is.
0: It is one of those things where if you can clear the outer map, there is a power generator outside. Um, so you can either blow that up to kill the lights or you can just turn it off which sends someone to check out the power outage so you can get like a free neutralization on a guy too um yeah. that's probably sent from the first courtyard um so there's a lot of ways to do this and i think it's pretty cool it's a, there's a lot of ways to do it but also it's the most singular you have to go in one direction and you don't have a whole 360 degree angle of penetration to approach which is kind of fun yeah through the first gate you'll have to contend with another sniper who's on the far right and basically has the main open gate um, like dead to rights. That's usually why I climb up the wall to get in here and kind of roll past him. There's a Walker gear patrolling down the central pathway yet again. And th- this time there several sentries and a couple Manning spotlights, namely on the left and a couple of patrols walking around. I usually try to switch it up and go far right here, you know, being mindful of the sniper and then work behind him, work in between the Walker gear and the two guys defending the gate and then on the left side of the map, near the back, you can go up a ladder that'll get you into the next courtyard. Um, this is one of the denser areas, enemy-wise, um, and it's you have to be careful because they'll also put landmines in various uh, roads and paths on the far left. Um, so you have to like be very mindful of where you're going. The second courtyard introduces a chopper that's uh, surveilling overhead. Um, And you have to be mindful of it. Um, And it can also kind of glance you on near the edges of the first and the last courtyard as well. Um, There are several buildings with security cameras around and a walkway on top of them. I usually work my way through the buildings. um, And I do that uh, usually previously. I try to interrogate at least one guard who will give up the security camera locations. Um, So then you can know because some of these security cameras are located right as soon as you open a door. Um, so you might just step out of it or step into a building and you'll be caught right away um, if you didn't know it was coming. So um, that is something I usually do. Um, on the far right, which is not the path I usually go, there are a ton of crates to extract as well as a tank. Um, I think that might even be one of the optional objectives for um, this mission. And once again, there's a walker gear patrolling the middle as well the third courtyard is there's basically a Walker gear parked right in front of like the entrance to the elevator shaft. That's where your goal is to get through to. Um, there's a couple of guys patrolling the high walls and then a couple of guys patrolling on the right with, um, like a little platform up a staircase. So they have an elevated view. Again, I usually come up high. Um, I like to take the high road, climb the ladders and cracks in the wall, um, to get the highest possible vantage point. Mm -hmm. And I, I like to use the stun arm quite a bit in this game broadly um, but if you can get like to a good spot near the entrance of the map on the highest level, if you fully charge the stun arm and unleash it, it should clear the entire map, or at least this entire courtyard, I mean, because um, everyone's within 30 to 40 meters of you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's just a easy waltz into the base. That's
2: a cool way of doing it. I like that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, I like the stun arm a lot. I ended up spamming it quite a bit in this uh, most recent playthrough. Um, I hadn't really used it much before in re- uh, previous playthroughs, but I had seen some like let's plays and other mm. people using it, and decided to work it more into my arsenal. I like like usually use the hand of Jahudi or the rocket arm previously, mm. just because those are kind of fun and just they're more fun to use. But the stun arm is just ended up being way more effective, especially for a non lethal.
2: More applicable, yeah. I did the same thing with the uh, decoys like this time through. I never really used them. And I saw so many people have fun, like making a giant circle of them and then standing in in the middle of it and being like, who am I? Am I the which (laughs) one's the real guy? And just like messing with guards more. Yeah, that's definitely more uh, hitman mode. I got into of just being like, "Let's, let's just like throw a coin over here and get this guy behind the wall and then just like toy with him. I don't know. I definitely, when you play Metal Gear a lot, you're very, um, you're very focused on, uh, like, efficiency and, like, optimum, like, taking guys down as quick as possible, and it's like, it's not like they're gonna alert the whole map, you can just Mm -hmm. mess around with guys, it's more, it's honestly more fun, it's a more fun way to play.
0: Yeah, especially for repeat playthroughs, I feel like this game, like, every Metal Gear game, like really ever has had ways to fuck with guards, but this feels like the best since Metal Gear Solid 3. Yeah. Um, just because you have a lot more space. And a little bit of the problem with Metal Gear Solid 4 is that so many times you're like in a war zone, um, so you don't like have the opportunity to fuck with patrols as much. Um, Whereas Metal Gear Solid 3, basically every map allows you to fuck with guards by throwing snake or poison food or laying down porno magazines. Yeah. Um, and I feel like the decoys are like the best evolution of that we've seen since. Yep just broadly talking about this mission i know we mentioned everyone's in full body armor so it does neutralize a lot of your um non-lethal weapons besides something like say the stun arm or like sleep grenades um like your tranquilizer especially your first time through won't have enough uh, power behind it to penetrate any of this stuff also it's just it's dense with guards it is not like an easy map where you just have to wait for a patrol to get by you have to like hope that two or three asynchronous patrols line up perfectly for you to like kind of sneak past them
2: which is great. I love. Yeah, it's what a last mission, quote unquote, should be. And even though I know this is what forty percent through the game, uh,
0: <laughs> yeah, it's still it's it's how you should design these things. I, I'm a big fan of it. Mm-hmm. It is definitely at least just purely from a stealth infiltration point, probably my favorite map, or yeah. it's definitely in the top two or three. And it, like I said, it's different because every other um, map, minus a couple things, like say, um, you know, finding where the man on fire is. Um, A lot of those are like, okay, you have, you can go anywhere and penetrate this from wherever you can fly your chopper right into the middle of the base. Um, You don't have that kind of leeway with here. You have to go up the main road and go through every courtyard and through all the defenses to get through it. So it really makes you run the uh, gambit. Uh, I did want to point out the thing you referred to earlier, like getting in your Walker gear and flying by to get the S rank for like time. Like, I find that's the best way to do it. Like, I put uh, the most powerful shield that you can develop on your back, which um, if it's on your back, it prevents uh, yep. you know bullets from hitting you. You hop in the walker gear and put it in tread mode, and you can fly to the end of it. You'll definitely set off alerts. Um, but because you'll be completing the mission in like a minute and a half, if you do it all the way through, um, <laughs> you'll get the S rank regardless of the alerts and people shooting at you and hits taken and all that stuff.
2: That's just one. it reminded me of one of my favorite, uh, when Bioshock Infinite came out, my cousin was living, uh, who's he living at? my aunts, I think, I think he was. Yeah. And I went over there it was before I, it's just in between jobs. Like I didn't have a job for eight, nine months while he was living here. So we hung out all the time. He didn't have a job for most of that either. It's great being like twenty one, wasn't it? But uh, uh, when Bioshock Infinite came out, he watched me play through the first like hour and a half, first two hours or so, which is like the intro of the game and like like the big first big action stuff, all the way through. Like I think we got to like the museum area, and then when I he went home or something, and I beat the game within like another day or two, and he borrowed it to play it, and I was I brought it over to watch him play it and he'd already seen all that intro stuff so he just ran through the entire intro like the first 40 minutes of that game including all like the fighting which was just very funny to watch cuz like the guards would these these guys would step out and be like stop right there and he just <laughs> just like sprint past them all and they wouldn't even they'd be like hey which is just a very funny it's very funny to have like a stealth game or like a game with like uh combat areas that are like obviously set up for you to fight through and then just leave no I'm not doing this <laughs> just imagining like hey there he is hey he's hey hey come back it's just funny to imagine these guards being like there he is there's oh wait he's gone yeah <laughs> just, brrr, um, just like running just driving through it a little, this little i love the i, I said this before i love walker gears just the way it looks mm-hmm. it's, it's such a fun looking guy
0: yeah um that is one of the things i did do more on this playthrough was just use the walker gear more um mm-hmm. and i find it very enjoyable um, I di- I am someone who ye- usually just goes with D-Dog he's definitely my favorite uh, but like the walker gear can be fun in its own way and if you like equip it correctly like with the surveillance head it does some of what D-Dog does anyways in terms of sniffing mm. out guys mm. or surveilling them alright so Snake at this point works his way up the elevator shaft to the helipad where Skullface is just about to board a chopper but Mantis appears, disappears and then Skullface comes straight for you
1: You too have known loss, and that loss torments you still. You hope hatred might someday replace the pain, but it never goes away. It makes a man hideous inside hand. Wouldn't you agree? We both are demons. Our humanity won't return. You, me, we've no place to run, nowhere to hide. And that is why I'll show you my demon.
0: Follow me, Big Boss! What comes next is an interactive cutscene, one that can be skipped, but otherwise minimally controlled by the player. Skullface leads the way to his demon. Snake follows in a slow trot. Feel free to put a tune on your Walkman while you're just chilling. Skullface and Snake eventually hop into the back of a Jeep and drive back to the Serac power plant, to where Snake had initially tracked Huey before eventually rescuing him from the Soviet base camp. Starting all the way back in the helipad, Skullface starts delivering his long history and monologue, the one he has surely recited in his head for years, waiting for the day he may once again come across Big Boss. It's a farce in a way, knowing that he delivers this to a fake. Not something all players will realize the first time through, since most of the, this is not actually Big Boss evidence comes up after this part of the game. But the fun experience for the player is that it all still matters to us. Even though boss is a fake, our experience playing as him is real, which allows the story and themes that Skullface lays out here still land.
2: Yeah, I'm a big fan. I, I love uh anything that in a game that is sort of you know what, I'll bring up a series I don't bring up that often. There's a lot of stuff in Half-Life 2 in the last like four <laughs> or five hours where uh I really don't bring up Half-Life that often, considering it's been no, a series. No, this
0: is this is new. I thought you were um, gonna say Hitman or <laughs> something like that. No, no.
2: Um but there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, what they call they call braincasts in Half Life Two, where it's Doctor Breen talking to the populace over like a big screen, like, the big I mean Big Brother style. That's literally like that's the design cue. That's the main design cue for that game. But the the last like over the course of the game, they stop being like general announcements to the populace, and they start being spe- specific, like him talking directly to Gordon Freeman. And they're all they're all like that. They're all to you. They're not to Gordon Freeman because Gordon Freeman has no. He's not a character. He doesn't have wants or desires. He's just an unstoppable, messianic figure. But um, I, I love I love any game that does that. There's the famous Green one where he's uh, he's think man think what have you created? You only destroy, which is a great which is true. Like because Gordon Freeman's supposed to be a, a physicist and a scientist, and instead he spends literally every second you control him murdering people and blowing things up. <laughs> but yeah, I love any game that does that. Any game that. It does it without like doing the Borderlands Deadpool style like winking to the crowd. I, I yeah, I, I'm a big fan of any, and like, KotOR kind of does that a little, a little,
0: like the winking stuff, or does it well?
2: No, like turning to you, the player, and and talking to you. I mean, but this is this is great. It is one of the only things in this game that feels really strongly Metal Gear because it's. It, I was honestly waiting for Skullface to be like press R twice to dodge. Like, oh, thanks, Bullface. <laughs> like, to do our press select to do that shit. It's something that's missing from this game.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, we've talked all through our coverage that uh, a lot of the best parts of Metal Gear, or just a signature part of it, is a lot of it tries to exist in that space between game and gamer. And this mm. feels like one of the few times where it's actually doing that. Like the Psycho Mantis stuff, or some of, like, change the calendar on your PlayStation console to mm-hmm. PN kind of stuff. Um, This is the... Cause there is less engagement with like the console and the controller even compared to previous games. And that might be because this is the first multi-platform game and not one specifically designed for that. But that's what I was thinking, yeah. So maybe that's why he couldn't do as much fun stuff along that ways, but this is one of the spots where it can. Big boss, you like Castlevania, don't you? <laughs> um I would love to hear that from Skullface, but um there is also just enough ambiguity in here. Like, very occasionally, Big Boss will appear in quotes, or yes, yes. the delivery by Skullface will be like, I noticed that. Come with me, Big Boss. So, like, Skullface may know. Um, I still think he probably doesn't, but it's also one of the things where to him it's almost irrelevant at this point.
2: Right? Well, I think he's also um, mocking because he, if anyone, he among like probably more than anyone else in the series. Except, I guess maybe zero would understand the issues that Big Boss had with that title. So he he would he would understand like that he that's not something he that's not a title he's necessarily proud of. Yeah, no, that's a good call too. And so he's he's like throwing it in his face almost like I was there. I know what you did, Big Boss. Like you're not you're no
0: boss. That kind of shit. I love that. Skullface is great. Skullface is a great character.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And this is definitely like his highlight. This is like his time to shine. Yes. As you were saying, it starts with Skullface revealing that he was Big Boss's shadow in Salino Yars 20 years ago, cleaning up after him and recovering what he could from the Cobra unit and Grozny grad. All of that, in combination with the Philosopher's Legacy being obtained by Ocelot, allowed Zero to create his own organization, Cypher, since Washington didn't know how to spend money. <laughs> Cypher's goal was to support America in all things, uniting the world as one under that American banner all underwritten by the boss's will. Thus, we have the Patriots. The Patriots' plan was to control information, and through that, they could control militaries, intelligence apparatus, politicians, even guns, as Paz said at the end of Peace Walker. Skullface foresaw this too. We are a world united by codes, by languages, by communication. And the key, or cipher, to all of that would be zero System a code or language to rule the world, one that will eventually manifest as the Patriot AIs. A world without borders is a world unified by one language. Skullface agrees with that, but he has a different language in mind. Before we get to Skullface's plan though, let's hop into our imperialism analysis for this game, as MGSV perfects and finishes the saga-long examination of imperialism by zooming in on the language of imperialism, and maybe more importantly, the imperialism of language. Let's let Skullface lead us into the segment.
1: War changed And not only by visage. words chill. I was invaded by words, burrowing and breeding inside me. A philosopher once said, It is no nation we but a language. Make no mistake, our native town is our true fatherland. My fatherland, my truth was stolen from me, and so was my past. All that's left is the future,
0: and mine is with the
1: edge.
0: All through our coverage, we have examined how Kojima has refined his themes on imperialism, especially American imperialism. Nuclear weapons, the petrodollar, proxy wars, private military companies, intelligence and surveillance, unmanned weapons are just some of the angles from which MGS has approached imperialism in the past. Kojima's thesis on the imperialism of language here, though, is his most eloquent, no pun intended, and the one best manifested through gameplay and narrative. As Skullface just said, and Brian repeats at the end of every episode, it is no nation we inhabit, but a language. Make no mistake, our native tongue is our true fatherland. Already, we are zooming beyond the confines of nation-states to take a more comprehensive view of imperial forces at work. The British Empire ruled the globe for a couple centuries and passed the meme of empire onto its son, the United States, who emerged as the new dominant force in the 20th century. The English language, and by extension English-speaking countries, have been the big boss of the world for almost 500 years now. In an age of colonial expansion and manifest destiny, that language was spread far and wide by its vectors, the British and American empires, and the Anglo sphere broadly, Western or global North nations loyal to industry and wealth most of all. English is not the only language of empire, see Spanish, Portuguese, French, etc., but it is the one we will focus on here. Via expansion, they wiped out many languages in full, either by killing all those who speak it, or imposing English on the native speakers, stamping out the meme of those native languages as it wasn't passed down to future generations. Do you see already how the themes of gene and meme from the first two Metal Gear Solid games are being baked into this? In a sense, cultural genocide is being inflicted on these people. Losing your native language cuts you off from your land, your community, your history. How can you keep the past alive and build a future without your mother tongue? According to the Rosetta Project and Global Language Loss, 639 languages known to have existed are already extinct, about 10% of all languages. Another 457, or 9%, have fewer than 10 speakers and are expected to fade unless revitalization efforts are made. 28 language families have already been lost, languages that all derive from a proto-language, a meme of language taken by different peoples and refined by local cultures. We see that with the Dari language in this game, which is the Afghani descendant of Farsi. While there are over 6,000 languages currently spoken, most have fewer than 10,000 speakers. In other words, 96% of the languages of the world are spoken by 4% of its people. It is estimated that anywhere from 50 to 90% of languages will be endangered or dead by the end of this century. Languages have always come and go during human civilization, but they are dying off at an accelerating rate because of globalization, neocolonialism, and linguicide. That's why I think it's very specific that Skullface calls his vocal cord parasites ethnic cleansers. This ain't rock and roll, it's genocide. Language is a way of recording history, of keeping the past alive, since that's part and parcel with building a better future, as Solid Snake orates in Metal Gear Solid 2. The inclusion of Code Talker speaks to the most specific set of languages that the US has obliterated, that of the indigenous people to the Americas. What's worse, we have taken their languages and turned them into military code, our main avenue for further colonizing and imperializing, leading to more language death. It's not enough indignity to wipe out the Native Americans and destroy their culture, but we repurpose their language to continue doing just that. Afrikaans, a West Germanic language developed by the Dutch and the African colonies, was dwindling in the 70s and 80s the player will hear CFA soldiers in Central Africa talking about Afrikaans being on the way out. It is the language of colonizers, a partial Creole language that seemed to be fading as many of the original colonizers of the African continent were moving out and local communities dubbed it as the language of the oppressor.
2: Well, it's funny that you mentioned that lingua franca was actually a language. It was a trade language in the Mediterranean, but it, it was a language that was wiped out by... Mediterranean colonialism. I think the most interesting thing, and this kind of goes against you just using English, but since English is what it is, even the term—it's—it's it's strange to me that we in this country, well, I guess in this, I guess Britain does it too. Maybe this is why they do it. Uh, sort of use motherland and fatherland interchangeably, even though those two terms have very different connotations. Mm-hmm. I think Brits have used. I think the motherland kind of came back in the in the into the vogue in England because of they had the Queen. But that concept, like the idea of a fatherland, a patria land, is very much a Roman concept. It's something I don't think people, the ancient Greeks, in, you know, quote unquote invented democracy. But the ancient Greeks were, you know, they lived in city states. They had no concept really of, I guess they had the Hellenic League, but that was forced upon them by Alexander, by, um, Philip of Macedon. So that wasn't really like something they really believed in. They they didn't really believe in, I mean, the, the Spartans famously, this is a little bit of a tangent, but the Spartans famously did not consider themselves to be Greek. They considered themselves Heracles' ancestors, and they considered themselves foreign invaders on the Greek peninsula who were there to kill all Greeks, or enslave all Greeks. Same thing. <laughs> like, they, they, this idea of, like, a nation, of a fatherland, really did not exist until the Romans sort of invented it wholesale. Just like they invented the concept of an empire and imperialism and the Imperium, which is th- just their right to rule. So that, and, and that stuff, I mean, that can be traced directly to, even though, interestingly, the British Island is not really a notable Roman province because they ran into so many insane, awesome natives there who, who kind of beat them. Not as badly as the Germans did. And in, in like near Berlin who obliterated Rome and they never came back. Anyways, just this idea, even if you don't track it through just through english through through Great Britain through the island, uh you can track it through i mean who was the the famous heir to the Roman Empire, even though it's an old it's a, a Voltaire joke, the Holy Roman Empire is neither holy nor Roman nor an empire <laughs> right right right, but they were the the primary bent like the, the, culturally I think the main at least the Eastern Roman Empire, they were the main, the Byzantine Empire, they were the main sort of successor. And that, the Holy Roman Empire, after it fractured, became the German Confederation, which became, which was sort of absorbed by Prussia, it became Germany. And Germany, famously, is the, the fatherland. So this, this, this concept is, I guess it's not entirely related to language, although imperialism, the imperialism of language is something I've, I could talk about the Norman invasion and how it changed, you know, mutton, lamb, beef, pork. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is 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 a, is a British word? You know, I'm sure people know what I'm talking about. Like those changes to like the wholesale changes to uh, someone's language. Like how do you the Norse, which which include the Normans, by the way, the Normans were more more Norse than French. They were they were already people who had invaded northern france and then invaded britain it's really kind of impossible to to overstate how how much effect it had on english mm-hmm. because they like they changed our pronouns the they them the, the this that those are not english words they are now but they were not like the th sound is not an english sound like that is the, the it's fuþork or thorn is what it was in norse and that is a that, it, like, that sound is not English, the natural English sound. And yeah, uh, hey, it's not bad that the English were taken over. But like, that's crazy to think about how that happened to this language. Mm-hmm. And you got to think, take that out to languages that, let's be honest, as you said, that sort of thing takes hundreds of years of, of, of inter- intermingling of culture and language and, and people marrying each other and Vikings ceasing to be Vikings and just becoming Norsemen again and just living... You know, becoming farmers and and shepherds and all this stuff, and marrying in English families and then having mixed children and having all the and like just like that took from 1066 or even before that it was happening before then. But let's just say 1066, mm-hmm. it was two or three hundred years before "quote unquote" Middle English really for you know Chaucer. It was kind of the modern English is sort of that that that's sort of the jumping off point. And that stuff is happening, as you said, so much faster now, like because just spread, like, and because U.S. imperialism has no. It's it's a little funny that we have this image of Vikings as like these ruthless, brutal raiders and pillagers, which they did do. They obviously they raided and raped and pillaged, but they also like those people specifically were they wanted just they they wanted to find a new place to live that because they had so many. It's not the most. I mean, Norway in particular is not um, the most hospitable place on earth. And like, that's, that was their plan. They, like they found Britain and they were like, okay, cool. Island. We'll just live here. Like that was it. That was the extent of their imperial concerns. Like they, they didn't have anything close to the current, like, any, I, I'll just say English. I won't just say the United States. Cause I think Kojima makes that distinction. I think mm-hmm. he would understand that. Like, as you said, the United States is the son of Great Britain, of the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom is the son of not the United Kingdom, Britain itself is the son of Rome. Rome is the son of Greece. Greece is, I mean, kind of the son of like the Hittites and, and mm-hmm. the early Mycenaeans, and even in some in some ways, the um, ancient Egyptians. It,
0: yeah, that's what I was going to say. And too. the sea
2: peoples, of course, the famous sea peoples. They were, they were involved.
0: Atlantis. Yes, we know all about them.
2: <laughs> we love. I love that they're just called sea peoples. Like they were probably like Crete. And Cyprus. Well, they they destroyed the Cypriots, but then they also took over Cyprus. Mm-hmm. Um, and when the Bronze Age collapsed, anyways, anyways, like I think he understands that. But it, yeah, it's it's striking. I, I, what really really standing out with what you said to me is is because it is the natural course of language to change, and some languages die, and it happens. Like it should happen naturally. It's it's I almost say it's natural selection, but it is just
0: like just like animals go extinct. There is a Like, there is a natural case of languages going extinct. Like, it's been happening since the dawn of time. I think uh, you were talking about how, uh, like, it's not limited to one country. And I was thinking, you know, we have a friend, we'll call him Vladimir L. That's a little too obvious. We'll call him V. Lenin. And he talks about imperialism as the highest stage of capitalism, Mm -hmm. because you Mm -hmm. start having these like multinational companies who need to exert influence beyond the borders of a nation state. Um, And, you know, they have to unify, you know, Chase Bank needs to have offices in Singapore and Europe and everywhere else. And a way to unify that across multiple platforms is via language. And the rise of capitalism is a big part why English accelerated as a lingua franca is because of that. Another thing you mentioned, um, which I was looking up on my phone, which you probably heard on mic, was you said the word for fatherland as like something patria or patria. Patria, yeah. You can see that meme forming in the patriots. Like that Mm -hmm. term comes very specifically from that. Um, So it's almost like tying fatherland and mother tongue together into like one unified Vi- or like thesis on imperialism, which I really like. Imperialism is defined. I have to make
2: sure, but it's defined as expansion for expansion's sake. So you know, mm-hmm. it'd be um remiss of me as an English major not to also say dolce decorum est pro patria mori. How fitting and sweet it is to die for one's country. Mm-hmm. The famous um Wilfred T. Owen's famous poem. Not T. Owen. What is this? What is his middle name? Edward. Sorry.
0: No, the last thing I wanted to say about that is I mentioned globalization. And I think one of the things, and this probably hits for Kojima, like personally too, yes. is just the aspect of diaspora. Like I feel, especially now as, you know, pushing 40, I feel regret about not connecting more with my mother tongue and my mother language of Hindi and um, like a lot of my parents' culture. But when we came here in the 80s, um, or my parents came in the 60s, but like when I was born, Like the emphasis on us was you must learn English because that's how you're going to succeed in America. Yes. And you don't want to sound like you have an accent and you want to be able to become a businessman or doctor or whatever it is. Um, So diaspora is another way that languages get stamped out. And that could be something that could be a natural way of like, you know, native speakers to lose their tongue, but because it is fueled by capitalism and a lot of diaspora is caused by American imperialism abroad, um, that's where it's getting accelerated as well.
2: And I I don't want to be a white person, but.
0: (laughs) You're allowed to be a white person.
2: I I don't. My my mother's family is fourth generation, so not that far removed. Like, my grandpa's grandparents, I guess, came over. No, it might have been his parents. I had to look it up again. But they, they came through Ellis Island, and they had their name changed, and they – uh, it was – I'd have to look it up again, but I had looked it up before. One of his parents did not speak English, like, only spoke Gaelic. So, like, you know, that like that, that's enough. We lost the O off of our name. And then, you know, so, like, it happens. It happens. Like, I don't know anyone in my extended family who knows anything about – like, I probably know the most Irish just through being an English major, if that makes any sense. mm mm-hmm. <laughs> No, that does. So, you know, you lose, you lose these things, and it's kind of sad. But uh, like I said the Wolf Owen poem, Dulce et Decorum Est, was written. He was a World War I soldier who wrote that poem, basically condemning the idea. Like, that's an old parable. Or not parable. That's a little motto. Dulce et Decorum Est, perpetuum. Or how fitting and sweet it is to die for one's country. And the whole poem is him basically saying, like, if you were here seeing this, you would know how foolish that is. And that poem was published posthumously because he was killed within a couple of weeks of writing it, which is why World War I poetry is really dark and bleak, but there's also a lot of beauty to it. But anyways, going all the way back, Diaspora is an interesting concept for a Japanese author, I guess, in this case, to really tackle because, and, and we talked about this before, I'm sure he's not uh, trying to say that his country, his own country, is, is free of imperial.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, History. he it's been baked into his critique since the first Metal Gear Solid.
2: But it's just an interesting sort of um it's not double speak, it's not a disconnect because he he's very cognizant of it, but like it is very interesting that Kojima is one of the most American influenced off like non non-American mm-hmm. creators in the on the world and he still is able to detach himself from liking, you know, escape from New York to be like, "Hey, this country's not good though." <laughs> like bad things have happened also. Maybe he's reflecting on the fact that he even is familiar with American cinema, mm-hmm. because of the post-war. I mean, the occupation—they almost partitioned Japan and like just kind of slammed it into like culturally, just sort of beat it into submission with like American American iconography and and American products and American capitalism, like, mm-hmm. and it's resulted in Japan being probably the most like. The rawest and most virulent capitalist state in the world, I would say, hmm? like the most—I I would say, uh, just from what I understand of it—the most capitalist, like in ways that have not helped the country. I would say.
0: Okay, now we can get to the thing I've been waiting to discuss since we started this podcast: how Kojima takes this theme of imperialism of language, inflicting a lingua franca on a population, and how he manifests that into the story of MGSV because I just really like it. As Code Talker mentions, he was sent to an American school for natives, where he was forced to learn English, read English, speak English. Though not interred, my parents' schooling in India, even after British rule, was not so different. They had English classes in which they had to read English books, many of the same ones we still read here and now. Four of the most common books read in any English curriculum are George Orwell's 1984, William Golding's Lord of the Flies, Herman Melville's Moby Dick, and Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. What Kojima does in MGSV is take the four books most instrumental to English-speaking empires imposing their language on others and made them to the organizing pillars of this narrative. And not just the books themselves, but the memes downstream from them. It's not just Conrad's Heart of Darkness, but also Coppola's Apocalypse Now not just 1984, but also V for Vendetta and David Bowie's Diamond Dogs. Let's consider each in turn. Starting with Moby Dick, thematically, the theme of revenge animating every character, from Skullface to Snake, Huey, Kaz, and Eli. But ultimately, all of them are up against forces they cannot control or which are indifferent to their lusts. Thus, Skullface monologues to a fake, Kaz feels betrayed by Big Boss, Eli never gets to confront his father, Venom Snake is acting out someone else's revenge arc. All of them are left with a phantom pain, a hollowness to their vengeance, zeroed out on the inside. Also, they're all gay. Very much so. <laughs> Just like in Moby Dick. Exactly. They're all gay. Yeah, when I call them a harpooner, you know what I mean by that. Yeah. References to Moby Dick include Pequod Chopper, Ishmael and Ahab as the names for Big Boss and Venom Snake, The giant whale that eats the chopper summoned by Mantis, the phantom limbs, which we can see specifically in Ahab but also in Kaz, the loyalty of Mother Base's men to Venom Snake is similar to the loyalty shown Ahab, and the Kwekeg chopper which we just shouted out earlier. Moving on to Heart of Darkness, the themes, while dated, is an exploration of horrors arising from European colonization into Africa. At the heart of darkness is a man from the colonizing power who sets up his own fiefdom, using brutal tactics and superior technology. Skullface stands in for Colonel Kurtz, but Eli too is evocative of this later on. And we want to uh, also note the downstream media, Apocalypse Now, which also plays into references that we'll go over. I would even say that's the main. Oh, yeah, I
2: would say more so than I would say that's that's even the reference. But yeah, you want to make this this analogy work. I think it works best to use Heart of Darkness, but that's certainly the most. It's also better. It is the better story. Yeah, Yeah, like I I don't think Heart of Darkness shouldn't be read, but yeah, it definitely needs to be prefaced with the fact like this is a deeply racist book and it's racist in the way that it's sort of in the way the Uncle Tom's Cabin is where it's like I think the intentions were not. It's not, you know, it's not a Rudyard Kipling thing here. We're not, we're not dealing with like just raw, like the most racist shit you've ever seen. But like,
0: yeah, it's, it's not, um, it's trying to call out colonialism, but it's not doing it in a way that's doing any favors for the local yes, population. Yes, they're trying very, to champion. Yeah.
2: But it has, it does have one of the, the great ending lines in literature. Do you want to give it for the audience? Just looking into the heart of a darkness. It's, they said, he says a line there. There's the line. I can't remember the exact line, but yeah, Yeah, that's the end of it. Is is the end of it? Is 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 um? I don't even know the protagonist's name. That's how dull he is, Uh, just staring out over the Thames and just sort of zoning out and and realizing that uh, all civilization is is this in some. It's it's that it's the Colonel Kurtz thing writ large in some way, and just sort of disassociating and realizing that that civilization as as a concept is is still strong people devouring weak people and having that revelation in a way that is just very depressing to him like it's it's like a really fucked up it's a
0: great ending it's a very good ending to an okay book uh some of the references these the first couple ones will probably apply more to heart of darkness that is the congo setting yeah the congo just the further deeper exploration into like the local maps like you get into darker and like more sinister locations, whether they be OKB Zero, Smazai Base, the Devil's House. That's where a lot of like the mm-hmm. like skull stuff or Man on Fire stuff happens. The ferry boat you find Eli in, and then kind of flipping uh, flipping over to Apocalypse Now. Um, the fact that you can have music blast from your chopper, including Flight of the Valkyrie, and also Skullface's hat. I realize his ten gallon hat is very similar to Robert Duval's in that movie. Oh, real quick, Marlo is his name, and it's um.
2: That's right. I forgot before that I had to look up the exact right before that. He lies to Colonel Kurtz's fiance and telling it that actually he died heroically and all this, which is conflicting. Like it's just a, um, that kind of experience will change the person I guess is the other part of the ending. I don't know. I really it's it's a classic uh, mediocre thriller with an awesome ending. So I, I'm a big fan of those. Like I like pris- the, the film prisoners. I would say it's mediocre, but it's a decent thriller. The prisoners is dope with an incredible ending
0: i would i would say um heart of darkness i think is i think it's still relevant in terms of the western canon and it's just short enough where it can get by on its ending um to make it kind of worthwhile if it was like moby dick length in terms of the story i don't think that ending would say well you notice
2: i didn't even i've read moby Dick twice i didn't even attempt (laughs) to to really
0: like break that down because it's it's too it's it's both on the sleeve and I don't that's the one where it's like it's hard to pick out little things that I don't think anyone wouldn't notice the first time through. Those we are also the, can't yeah, it, it's 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 the most on the sleeve of all of these. Well it's it's the classic Kojima. Has he has he even read it? <laughs> he just knows there's a whale in it and people have lost limbs. Yeah, I mean pro- I would say probably, but like yeah, it's um He's definitely read it. I, I I know that much, but yeah, it's he's not like diving deep into it beyond just like revenge is bad. Yeah, it's very difficult to to reference Moby Dick without doing those
2: same references and getting anything deeper because if you do, you're you're no longer referencing Moby Dick. You are just doing Moby Dick. Like there's there's it's it's not a short. Like you said, The Heart of Darkness is one of the reasons it's read in glasses. Is it's very short. It's read more than than Frankenstein, despite being a significantly worse work, mm-hmm. um, because Frankenstein is a little bit longer.
0: Um, The other thing I was going to say is you can even read some of the chapters on like spermaceti and just getting deep into whale lore as like Kodak calls. Yeah. Um, Like they're not even like (laughs) necessary, like because a lot of times, and I know some of my friends uh, who had other English teachers, they would skip chapters or skip like chunks of chapters and reading it just to make it easier for a 15-year-old to get through the book. Um, It's also the only one here. Um, that really doesn't have a downstream media like, you know, Apocalypse Now is based on this or V for Vendetta is based on this. It's too big. It's too big. And Moby Dick is one of those things that sh- it, it, it is Moby Dick. <laughs> yeah. There is no like modernization of it that people care about. Or I don't even think there is one that I could think of. Um, this is honestly probably the closest thing to it. I'm just imagining Snake. This is New Bedford. It's a whaling <laughs> town. Oh, Interesting. With 1984, the themes of mass surveillance, perpetual and fluid war, propaganda, and torture are major pillars of Orwell's novel. It also comes up with ideas around doublespeak, thought crime, newspeak, all ideas related to the use and policing of language. We've mentioned downstream media for it include V for Vendetta and David Bowie's 1984.
2: And the, the world we live in is just like it. Dang.
0: Damn. It's just like freaking 1984, man. Turn the calendar back, man. Oh, man. So this story is actually set in 1984, which is one of the references. The man on fire emerges from his like coma, much like V does in V for Vendetta. Yes. Uh, Big Boss is watching you posters are parallels of uh, Big Brother is watching you. The torture room at Mother Base is room 101, where they torch Winston Smith in the novel. Double speak in that everyone has two names. Uh, The mistrust amongst Diamond Dogs and Truth being the final mission uh, Kaz's final monologue about we have to be vigilant and paranoid still. And then Skullface will even say this war is peace in his monologue to Snake, which you'll hear in a couple minutes.
2: Yeah. Boy, I, I'd be saying too much if I really started talking about 1984. It was my favorite book for a long time, but not for political reasons, but because it's a book about all, like just how powerful language is, like what it does. The power of euphemism, mm-hmm. I would say, is the main like what what happens to a culture when it's able to hide its own crimes, hide things that maybe you don't want to be talking about behind euphemistic language, which has no parallel whatsoever to today's um, person involved in officer related bullet attack or whatever the yeah. fuck language <laughs> that is the is the way in which this the, we are like 1984 now that in that way, pretty much alone.
0: The other um, example I was going to say, and this isn't relevant to like 2022 per se, but I think, and this probably occurred over the course of the year, 1984, but the change in how the U.S. military apparatus captured the media in between the Vietnam War and Desert Storm, where they realized we get the CNN reporters on the ground floor, give them unlimited access so that we can get favorable coverage. That was like a huge shift, and I think that's the thing that most resonates. I think 1984 is great as, like, both a character story and because of its rumination on language as, like, a political prescriptivist thing. Uh, no. Or it has it has limits in its application.
2: Well, not only did Oral have bad politics, he also had incoherent politics, but yeah. I think he was an excellent writer. Mm-hmm. Just, like, writer of sentences. He was terrific. Yeah. I mean, his, his war stuff is really, like, well-written and good. I think people, we have a kind of a misnomer. There's a little bit of a cultural misnomer in this country where we think People act like the thing that made Vietnam – people turn on Vietnam was actual footage of you know horrific acts. And I'm sure to some extent, and people have never really seen that, but people still – that still existed. Like, they're the, the reels in, in World War II that just showed people being blown up. But it, it's it's entirely the the tone that the media covering it takes is, is mm-hmm. the difference. Because, yeah, media – it's one of the few times in the history of this country where American media – Collectively, was a moral good. <laughs> Reporting on just all the sh- like shit in Cambodia and everything, in with Vietnam,
0: even like some of the stuff with Nixon. Uh, yeah, like they I mean, the at some level, the major U, uh, U.S. media has always been somewhat captured by the levers of power. You can just look at what the New York Times was writing about the Holocaust as it was occurring. Yep, but there there was a stronger sense of. Uh, independent media and pushback against power that's almost yeah. completely not apparent uh, almost 20 years. You know, once you get to the late 80s and 90s, uh, the, especially the conservative wing of media had really figured out how to control the messaging.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's looking at it now, it's just – it's really hard to – to. I guess the only way this that George Carlin bit where he talks about how the way that, that the military – self reports it's no longer it has not been for a long time you know it used to be our boys in brown uh, blew up all the all the nazi lovers and like you know it would be very open frank speak of like 45 men were killed as we took this beach and now it's it's 45 you know uh enemy trokators were neutralized on the summit. like it's it's very you've missed like very detached inhuman language to describe things that if they were openly described would be horrific. Like how many times do you think we get reports now of like 50 hostiles neutralized when it's really like wedding party obliterated in Syria? Like if, if they just openly reported on like, we dropped a bomb on children, people would lose their minds, but they, they don't do that now Mm -hmm. because they've understood. They've learned the lesson from Vietnam that you have to completely dehumanize this stuff that is nineteen eighty four by the way that's mm-hmm. the point of nineteen eighty four is that you can language can dehumanize stronger more effectively than any other like there's there's nothing even close there's no power in this world that's even close to the power of language for the for controlling thought controlling how people think about things It's entirely language which is um Certainly very important to Skullface and, and by extension important to Kojima.
0: The last of the books is Lord of the Flies. Thematically, it's a group of kids stranded on an island due to war and their attempts to set up a society therein, dealing between the conflict between order and peace versus will to power and strength. There's a, you know, dichotomy between groupthink and individuality, things it is in discussion with 1984 with. The references are pretty much just Eli's whole thing in this game, Mm -hmm. his conch shell, the boar's head in Eli's boat, and the pig boss drawing on Eli's coat, which is a reference to a character named Piggy on top of the boar's head. The child soldier, Ralph, you meet after this chapter, (laughs) also gets his name from one of the book kids. And we'll talk about Kingdom of the Flies next time out. um, So maybe we'll save some of that discussion for there.
2: Yeah, and I feel bad because it's, uh, is it bad that I haven't read it? I am an English major. I just never
0: got it in high school. Uh, I actually haven't uh, read it and I haven't uh, – I yeah. just didn't get assigned it, but I've seen the Simpsons episode about it, so I basically know what happens.
2: <laughs> that's that's interesting though. That is – it is a, a – that I think is the only real uh, way to determine the canon, whatever the canon is. If it's something that the Simpsons can just reference and 95% of people were like, oh, yeah, I know what that is, then it's part of the canon.
0: Mm-hmm. I think all of this is just really coherent in execution. We have a very specific theme about language as a mode of imperialism. We take the tools used to perform that mode and make that the organizing tenets of this game. It's form meeting content, a defining characteristic of great art. Combine that with character stories that tie into the themes of language, Skullface, Code Talker, Quiet, as well as gameplay components with having to track down language translators to get the most out of the story. It's all just unified in vision in a way that honestly feels like some of Kojima's best thematic storytelling, at least up there with MGS2. Skullface's plan, then, is to eliminate the English language. His English strained vocal cord parasites will break the world, and Metal Gears will become the lingua franca. I will exterminate the English
1: language. With this, I'll rid the world of infestation... All men will breathe free again. Reclaim their past, present, and future. This is no ethnic cleanser. It is a liberator. To free the world from zero. Let the world be. Sans lingua franca, The world will be torn, son. And then it shall be. People will suffer, of course. A phantom fate. The world will need a new common tongue. A language of nukes. My metal ears shall be the thread by which all countries are bound together. Inequality. No words will be needed. Every man will be forced to recognize his neighbor. People will swallow their pain. They will link lost hands. And the world will become one. This war is peace.
0: Donna Burke's Sins of the Fathers plays you the rest of the way to Sahelanthropus's hangar, at which point Skullface means to have Mantis sick the man on fire on you yet again, hopefully killing you this time. Instead, Mantis is overpowered by Eli's hatred for Big Boss in the nearby chopper and ditches the man on fire as his vassal. You can see Eli's beret on Mantis's shoulder here. At the third boy's behest, Sahelanthropus comes to life chasing Snake, Skullface, and XOF out of the Hangar Canyon. Snake is able to get cover in the power plant, but Skullface gets trapped in the wreckage and fire, delivering his final monologue, the last meme he passes on.
1: Cipher will rewrite the records, and I will vanish from human memory. But the thirst for revenge that I have planted will infest the system. No one can stop it now. Sahalanthropus will unleash that thirst unto the future. Major, I'm burning! (gasps)
0: Anything you want to add
2: about his last words? I love him, but also uh, it, I just realized it's kind of pathetic that uh, Kaz is never powerful enough to connect with Mantis. He's just not even,
0: no one takes him seriously <laughs> enough. Poor guy. I guess, I guess in that way, he's not an Ahab character. Yeah, he, he he's not consumed by the lust of, or he is, but not. it's not interesting enough for anyone else to yeah, care no one, about. Yeah, no it. one else cares. Yeah, they're just like, Alright, man, whatever. He's just uh, screaming about hamburgers and, and fiddles and shit. Having his own time. Oh, we're going to talk about that next time. <laughs> Sahelanthropus, stomps Skullface good, and though we'll see him one more time before we exfiltrate, but we still have a giant mech to face down. Let's chat Metal Gear Sahel Sahelanthropus. Sahelanthropus gets its name from an extinct hominid species dating to 7 million years ago. It was discovered and designated as a new genus and species in 2002 after a discovery in Chad. It's actually been hotly contested whether Sahelanthropus was truly bipedal like its Metal Gear counterpart would have you believe. Scientists have gone back and forth on that question based on femur length and cranial analysis. Either way, the species existed at or near the common ancestor that would split between apes and humans. Sahelanthropus plays on evolutionary theory in many ways, the missing link between infantry and artillery, and is nearly human in its posture and actions. Weapons learning to walk is a metaphor for both Venom Snake and, of course, Big Boss. He is a gun. He's a walking weapon. And Sahalanthropus is a walking nuke. It's not fitted for a nuclear missile at this point, but using metallic archaea, has enough uranium that can be enriched at Skullface's will to go nuclear at any point, kamikaze style. The basic look of Sahalanthropus is a mashup of Metal Gear Rex and an Evangelion, the latter working in concert with the baby mantis floating beside it. It has the classic Metal Gear railgun and radome, and a whole bevy of weapons, including flamethrowers, missions, gatling guns, and a sword and whip. Metallic Archaea combined with Mantis is what allows this Metal Gear to take supernatural properties. It's an escalation of scale and synthesizes well with the horror elements in this game, giving it an eerie and otherworldly feeling. Sahelanthropus will be disabled following the boss fight we will discuss in a second and taken back to Mother Base, not unlike how Peacewalker worked. Huey will secretly work on it with Eli, allowing the latter to steal the mech in concert with the child soldiers. That's the end of the game we got, and we will be talking all about the Kingdom of the Flies content next time out.
2: <laughs> I, I will say, I do wonder sometimes, I'm just imagining Silent, there standing there, the weird stance it has, like the almost human stance, as you called it. Mm-hmm. I wonder how much uh, if Kojima is really into, I mean, I assume he is because he because PT, but I wonder how much like uh, creepypasta stuff he's into. He seems like the type to be, like, really into, like, look at this, like, to be like a Twitter account pretending that the sun has gone out, all that shit. I, I'm sure he loves that. So, like, it is, it is off-putting, though, like, like you said, it's, it, the way Saul Harbethus stands, even just the stance is a little bit upsetting looking. Mm-hmm. That's like, that's not quite right. It's almost, it's in that uncanny valley where, like, you see the, the silhouette of it and you're like, that's not, something's wrong, like. I don't know. I think you could take Sahel silhouette and put it at the end of a hallway, and people on uh, Reddit would be like, oh my god, it's so scary. (laughs) (laughs) Slender gear. Yeah, no sleep.
0: Uh, So the Sahel battle takes place in the giant Afghanistan map right outside the power plant, which is, I think, a good way of using the map. At the start of the mission, it is just kind of standing over you, leering at you. Yeah, it's upsetting. And it, it is like, what the fuck? And it is like towering. I feel like Metal Gear has never looked bigger in comparison to the player. Yeah. And I, I don't think it has been, but um, it really gets scaled down in a way that um, even in Peace Walker, which I think did really good with the Peace Walker mech, this really feels like a hulking behemoth.
2: The Peace Walker mech is like too, it, it moves around too much. Like it, mm-hmm. it's it's so comical how fast it is that it's it's not really intimidating. You're just sort of, I guess, it, I guess it is intimidating. It's not frightening. Yes. You're just like, oh, here comes it. I mean, this is the way Peace Walker's fights are, where you're, they're just such, like, uh... They're a little more sterile, I would say. Well, just, like, they're
0: so almost cartoonish. That also, yeah. Those are okay. anime fights. So with this boss battle, I like at the start of the mission where it's just leering over you, I try to get in as many rocket shots as early as possible. I usually go in with the CGM missile launcher because it shoots a cluster of missiles at once and can lock onto the target. Um, I also often come in with a grenade launcher too, just because I can just like pelt it with grenades in between reloading and resupplying with the computer-guided missiles. I do call in supply drops before I run out of ammo. Kaz in the quick will also call in support uh, drops for you, but he doesn't do it quickly enough or with enough frequency where you can just rely on him, especially the first time playing this when you don't have the most powerful rocket yeah. launchers yeah. at your disposal. at the end of this game. If you level up your weapons though, you can honestly beat this guy in a minute. Um, you can just, you can get in two to three rocket shots early before it even starts moving. And with the strongest weapons, it will just, it'll whittle down its life really fast. Um, there is a bonus objective, which is easier to do when you don't have the strongest weapons because once Saha gets low on health, it will start jumping at you and it will automatically put Snake in reflex mode as Mantis kind of floats above you as it gets ready to strike. You get a chance to actually shoot Mantis, and if you nail him once, that is uh, the bonus objective. And the extreme difficulty version is the highest numbered main mission in the game, mission number 50. It is pretty hard, but by the time you're actually playing it, you should be able to I wouldn't say beat it easily, but you should be able to beat it with the stuff you have within a couple of attempts. Yeah, I took... It took me a couple of tries the first time through. First time through, it uh, it was death.
2: Two or... I think three or four, actually. But it's a good fight. I I, I like it. It's a very... Considering it wasn't supposed to be the last boss battle, it's a pretty good last boss battle.
0: It's a it's a nice big area, so you really get to feel like you're fighting Metal Gear out in the open, which is nice. Yeah. There's also gun placements and anti-aircraft mis- uh, placements that you can jump into and fire on it if you want to. I don't really do that, but... I wouldn't recommend it. There's also like uh, stacks of barrels and stuff you can blow up, which will cause damage. So there is some good environmental stuff, but usually I just like to blow it. Like, this is one of the missions where you can go to ham with your incendiary weapons, so I like to do that. Yep. Kaz swoops in to pick up Snake, because they gotta say goodbye to Skullface after defeating Sahalanthropus. He's dying, mangled, and begs for death. They take Skullface's English strain of the vocal cord parasites, but only two of the three vials are there. The third is very close to you, says Skullface, referring to Quiet. That we'll also talk about next episode. As for the two on hand, Snake gives them to the fire, but Mantis shows up to take one away, unbeknownst to everyone else. Kaz and Snake then proceed to blow off Skullface's limbs using Skullface's rifle, a player interactive portion that has you pulling the trigger like on the boss in Metal Gear Solid 3 or even Quiet earlier in this game. When Snake is pulling the trigger, we get brief flashes of the hospital, hook-handed Snake pulling the trigger, and a flash of Big Boss proper too. I am Big Boss, and so are you. This is his revenge as well, for Mother Base 9 years ago. Cos and Snake leave Skullface alive, albeit just barely, but Huey comes out of nowhere and finishes him off instead of letting him writhe in pain. Huey screams revenge and celebrates, making a mockery of everything that came before, revealing how hollow this all is, how the phantom pain will continue regardless. We get an extended montage of the return to Mother Base, Cos and Snake returning to their men. No defeat, no victory but they do come back with Sahelanthropus in tow. Skullface too, not physically, but in spirit, his phantom walking side by side with Venom Snake. Eli is here too, and Mantis beside him, though that's a secret to everyone else. I'll throw in some of the cause narration we get at the end. We hold our rifles in missing
3: hands. We stand tall on missing legs. We stride forward on the bones of our fallen. Then, and only then, are we alive. This pain is ours, and no one else's. The secret weapon we wield, out of sight. We will be stronger than ever for our peace. Sahel will unleash that thirst unto the future. Those were his last words. Cause. Pretentious to the end. Still. Doesn't feel like this is over. And I'll never be whole again.
0: We also get an ending statistic about the 7,100 languages spoken in the world, but only six are designated official languages of the UN. English is the dominant language, but less than 5% of the world's population are native speakers. We also get a post-credits audio clip as a standard Metal Gear fare. Kaz speaking about how his brothers are not avenged, the lust for revenge not satiated. There are still spies in the camp. Assume nothing and report everything my eyes. It's all very big brother or big boss is watching you stuff we talked about with 1984. Skullface, the target of vengeance, is gone, but that desire for violence and paranoia are still there, and will inform Venom Snake's quote-unquote heel turn in Chapter Two. Race. Most of the 19 missions after Sahelanthropus that comprise Chapter Two are alternative alternate versions of previous missions we already discussed. The point of those we'll talk about more next time out. The new main missions in this part of the game are pretty straightforward stuff. You're just tying up blue sands related to Skullface or Code Talker's work before Zero can recover them for himself.
2: And you know, I, I do want to say before we get too far into it, uh I assume next time this will be the big thing, but I do enjoy like I know that this stuff exists mostly as a uh way to pad the game out, like, just because they couldn't finish it. But it is like it is honestly kind of nice that it fits in with the the overall theme that once Skullface is gone, they're still just doing the same stuff. Like it's just pointlessness, mm-hmm. just sort of an endless, you know, war without end. But just specifically this, just this, just being like the same shit over and over. Really, I think works, as you said. I think you said before a couple episodes ago that it's this is supposed to be a, a decade long at least, right? Mm-hmm. Like. Yeah, we're supposed to believe
0: that this goes at least into the night, into the early '90s. This is years of. I w- yeah, I would say almost up to like 1995. Maybe not like specifically missions in '95, but yeah. you can imagine. I think based on the audio tracks we discussed, like I think the latest song released is 1992, '93. So I think you can imagine that some of these missions are still playing out then.
2: So it's just the co- uh, completely meaningless cycle that uh, Venom and, and Kaz are stuck in.
0: And some of it's also just, it's more Metal Gear to play, and it's kind of like yeah. unhampered by having to worry about where it fits in the story at this point. Like, there'll be Easter eggs for other stuff, but um, you can just go in and play these missions. Yeah. To run some of them down, and these are kind of intermixed with the repeat or harder versions of other missions that we've already talked about. There's To Know Too Much, which you have to find and extract a CIA agent. There are Walker Gears patrolling. It's the deserty area outside of Lamar Cate Palace. Um, XOF is basically looking for the CIA agent because he might have information about Skullface and Sahelanthropus, and you don't want him to be recovered by the CIA or KGB. The next one is Cursed Legacy, the most Metal Gear Solid 3 of all the missions, um, which is completely set outside uh, the jungle outside Code Talker's mansion. Um, and basically, you have to recover these two giant you know, crates. You have to extract them before Zero can reach them. Um, There isn't, I don't know if there's like a hard, oh, there is a specific timer on this. At a certain point, Kaz will say, oh, Zero's men are moving in, you have five minutes to get these crates out of here. But uh, this is a pretty fun mission and uh, somewhat difficult because the jungles is like really tight quarters and there are a fair amount of guards in armor and helmets and stuff. Extraordinary is set in the uh, ruins that start off this game where you ride out to with Ocelot. Basically, there's a film canister, but there's a heavy patrol for a very small area um, You just have to get in and get it out. Uh, I use the stun arm here. It pretty much levels everyone around you, and you can just run in and grab it. And then the last one is Proxy War Without End, and it's basically between two rival PFs, and you have to like just take out the targets. I don't even really remember anything else about
2: it. <laughs> yeah,
0: We're going to talk about the various endings next time out, but in this portion of Chapter 2, a lot takes place in the side ops, which we've actually kind of discussed in previous episodes. Snake will be sent on missions to recover the Mammal Pod AI and the Man on Fire's corpse from the Soviets. In the former, they discover Strangelove's corpse. The latter would come back to life one more time as the Man on Fire, but notices that this isn't the real Big Boss, puts out his light, and finally dies. There's a fair amount more to discuss, namely the endings for Eli, Quiet, and most of all Venom, Snake, and Big Boss. We'll tackle that in our final episode on Metal Gear Solid V next time out. That's mission complete for this episode. Our frequency is frontiers at gmail.com and at Front on Twitter and Instagram. You can support Frontiers at patreon.com slash mybromycatmypod, where you'll find me covering The Lord of the Rings. Um, You can also find me covering A Song of Ice and Fire and House of the Dragon over at ASOIAF, which I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. I have been Brian. Uh, It is not a nation we'd have, but, but a language. Now you know what we mean when we talk about that. Yeah. Shout out to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, aka DJ Empirical. Please remember to like, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast application. So until next time, remember, the sins never die, can't wash this blood from our hands. Sorry, one sec, my mouse is misbehaving.
2: Running through the house with a pickle in his mouth. Misbehaving. <laughs>